If you have your your Bibles, please turn with me to Philippians. Philippians in chapter 2, I would like to begin reading together with you from verse 1 and following. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and following. Where Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Father, we pray now that as we approach your word, give us hearts that are ready to receive. You said in your word in Isaiah It's to this one that I look. Isaiah 66, you said, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God, that's we want to have the right heart as we're approaching this time. We want a humble and a contrite spirit and one who trembles at your word. I don't know everything that that means, but we want to not treat your word lightly. We want to realize, Lord God, that you have the words of eternal life. You're the bread that's come down from heaven. Man can't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so, God, I pray, Holy Spirit, bless this time of ours. Strengthen our congregation. Unite us around our common faith. Help us, Lord God, to be encouraged in Jesus' mission. Amen. 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 Praise God. Paul's been at it for a little bit now. We've had a chance to see this in the book of, of, of Philippians. You know, the gospel is powerful in, in a number of ways, but what I want to highlight together for you is two things. How the gospel demonstrates not only its power, but a pattern for the Christian life. Here in this particular portion of Scripture, we see a couple of things. And we see how Jesus himself is set forth by the apostle before our very eyes as both the one that saved us, but also the one that we're supposed to follow after. And that's important 
Because the last thing we want is a truncated gospel. What I mean by that is a gospel that does enough to want us to go to heaven, but outside of that, nothing else happens with our life. I want a gospel that not only assures me of where I'm going as soon as this body drops, I want a gospel that actually transforms my life and makes a difference here and now. You with me? And that's what Paul wants. That's why he says here in this passage, you got to complete my joy. Paul's got wind of the church by now, a church that he himself planted, but he's away from. There's distance between them. But that hasn't stopped him from getting wind of what's been going on and what the update is about this church. Some good, some not so good, but mostly good, at least in this church at Philippi's case. And so here he is, and he's saying, look, if you really want to complete my joy, be this kind of church. Be this kind of community. Because that's the kind of community that's going to, at the end, reach the world. Jesus, in John 13 and 35, said, It's by this that all men shall know that you're my disciples, by your love one for another. That's the greatest apologetic. A lot of people talk about apologetics. Maybe you go in Christian bookstores or whatever. You say. He's an apologist, right? And usually when we see those people, they're heady, right? They're very cerebral. They're into like big questions and philosophy and a lot of the big questions that non-believers have. But you want to know what, what the greatest apologetic is that this world is hungry for and craving for? It's to see a community on fire for Jesus and in love with not only God but one another. You don't get that just anywhere. And the only thing that explains that is what Jesus alone can do. And Paul is saying, may that be so with you, church. He opens up in this passage in verse 2 by saying, not only to complete my joy, but he tells us this is how you can complete my joy, by being of the same mind, number one. Two, having the same love. Three, being in full accord. The word could also be translated in full agreement. All right, we'll get at that in a second. And then lastly, he says, and one of one mind. So the way that we're apparently supposed to, the Philippian church was supposed to complete Paul's joy was by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. This is the way we complete God's joy. God's looking at this church. You know Jesus is present, right? The book of Revelation talks about he's, he's, he's the one who walks among the churches. He's, he's the candlestick. He walks among the candlesticks. That's Jesus in, in Revelation being spoken of there. When has it occurred to you? When has it last occurred to you? I mean, is it giving you goosebumps to know that Jesus is present right now, and he, I don't know if he's just sitting next to you, if he's walking, if he's in our midst, but he's present, and he's here. And what does he want to see out of his church? What, what could we do as a body that if he were to look upon would complete his joy? That would make him to say, that's, that's what I died for. That's why I came. That's why I entered into human history. That's why I underwent. I, I experienced everything that I experienced for this. And Paul is saying, look, that's what completes my joy is to see churches alive for these purposes. And so he, he speaks of a couple of things that are different from each other but are related to each other. He uses terms like same mind, 
same love, full accord, one mind. You see, what Paul is speaking of is, is when, when the gospel gets a hold of us, we don't just get united or reconciled with God vertically. We also get united with each other horizontally. You see, the reconciliation that God accomplished was not just one between us and him. It's also one between us, I, and you. We, each other, one another. And until and unless the gospel has had that kind of work on us, we haven't experienced the fullness of the gospel. There are a lot of people who are cool with Jesus, but they're just not so cool with his people. There's even a book I read one time. They love Jesus, but not the church. There's a problem there. There's a problem. I get it. I understand. All you got to do is be around the church for a little, a minute, and you'll find out why. I remember when I was um, early as a Christian, um, there are a number of people who probably relate to this. It was just me and Jesus, and man, I felt like you could write a biography about me. Like I just felt like I had this strongest spiritual life. I was connected and. Me and Jesus, I mean, I, I was there until I started belonging to a church. Where'd it go? It just, it just went, just like that. I'm like, what is going on here? There's something about my relationship with other people that puts to the test and brings to the surface truth, reality, that doesn't quite exist when it's just me in my closet with my Bible. I can have all sorts of impressions and ideas and conclusions about me and my spiritual condition when it's just me and Jesus. But the way that God helps us really understand where our spiritual life is at and where our maturity is at is by our commitment to one another. It's amazing how John himself said it, said it best. He says, um, James said it, you show me your love, you show me your faith and your love without your works, and I'll show you mine by my works. John said, how can you love God whom you don't see and hate your brother whom you do see? What he's trying to point out is one of the ways in which we demonstrate our love and prove our love for God who's invisible is by the way in which we demonstrate and exhibit our love for one another who are visible. I understand why it's so convenient for me to just have, I just want Jesus, me and Jesus, I'll stream any sermon I need to stream. I'll download any message I need to download. I'll watch a worship team through YouTube. I'll buy the books. I'll subscribe to the podcast. And God says, I didn't send my son to die and to rise again to have a church so that we can all experience one another virtually via cyber world. No. The word became flesh, John 1.14, and dwelt among us. He didn't save us via app. He came down and actually lived among us. He had to experience being around people that rub you the wrong way, being around people that I'm afraid they're going to ask more from me than I'm going to get from them. And what do you do in that situation? What, what do I do in all these sort of situations that we all know exist anytime we spend any sort of meaningful time with other people? You got to learn you got to grow. And Paul says, look, I know y'all got the gospel. I know you got Jesus, but now you're getting the church, and I'm concerned. I'm concerned that you were good with Jesus, but now that you're getting used to each other, you may have encountered 
a thing or two that may discourage you now from wanting to continue in community with each other. And Paul's talking about biblical community here. You see, for pathway, God would say, for us to get anywhere as a church, for us to be anything as a church here in Dallas, we got to have the same love. We got to be in full accord. We got to have the same mind. What he's, what he's speaking of is unity. Now, as Christians, we understand, Ephesians helps us with this, that no Christian creates unity. Jesus did through his blood. That's what Ephesians 2 through 4 talks about. Jesus is the one who accomplished and created our unity. But it's our job, Ephesians 4, endeavor to maintain the unity of the Spirit. It's our responsibility to steward what God has purchased for us. And so my plea for us as a church as we're going forward is to understand we're supposed to be leaning into one another's lives. That's what I believe God is calling us to. We're, the gospel is supposed to be at the center, and our lives are supposed to be being built upon his word. And as we do, guess what ends up happening? We end up taking on God's mind. We end up being in agreement with God. Why? Because we're making it our aim to follow him. I want to make sure. I remember what my life used to look like before I belonged to Jesus. Now that I belong to him, Jesus told me, teach them to obey or to observe everything that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Teach them to obey how much? Everything. Everything. That means not just the red letters, whoever made that up, right? You got a red letter? No, I don't have a red letter Bible. If Jesus is God, it should all be red. It's like red letters, like I limit my devotion to Jesus to just the red parts. All Scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16, is God-breathed. Not red letters are God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. And so Jesus says, look, go into all the world. That's what we're doing. That's why we're here in Dallas. And make disciples of all nations. That's what's happening right now. Baptizing them. Some of you are about to. Some of you have. Some of you are on your your way. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And guess what? I'm with you as you go about doing that. That's what he's saying. To the end of the age. See, that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. And part of growing in this discipleship means what's going to happen is if somebody is growing and they're developing as a disciple... We're going to start having, because there's only one book, there's only one authority, there's only one person, one God and Father over us all, and therefore all of us are being united to him who's our head over the church. And so we're, we're getting his love, we're having his mind, and we're being in agreement, full accord with him, which means, guess what? We're all going to be heading in the same direction. And when God finds a body like that strengthened in this common bond, this common faith, that's a church that he can now use on mission in the world. You remember in Genesis in chapter 10, the Tower of Babel? Y'all remember that story? It's probably been a while since maybe you've looked at it, but you, you can recount basically what that story was about. Pagans, unbelievers, unregenerate, gathering together to have one common language. And not only did they have a common language, they went about a common mission. What was the mission? To build what? A tower that they thought was going to ascend to even the heavens where God is. Guess what? They were pretty successful. They had the same love. 
same mind. They were in full accord. And God looked down and he was like, wow, it's amazing what even unbelievers can do when they get unified. And what did God do? He came down and he blew on it and he scattered them, which is how we get all the languages of the earth and how we get different melanin and all that sort of stuff, right? That happens. That's how the world scattered. And that's how you got diversity all over the world. But God saw something. He was like, these guys, if nothing stops them, they are so united. How much more? As God's church is my point, as men and women who have trusted in Jesus Christ, in whom the Holy Spirit resides, how much more should we be? And the church is the place that is often known for bickering and gossip and quarrels and fights and politics and splits. The church of the living God should be the place where unity is found. And my prayer is, this would be your prayer, that this would be all of our prayer, that God, God, may we be of the same love. May we have the same mind. May we be in full accord. How are we going to get there? we got to be submitted to God's word. we got to be eager to want to make Jesus known, not only to know Christ, but make him known. It's got to be our heart's desire to want to be about the gospel. We can't all have separate agendas and interests, which is what he brings up here in this passage. Look with me. He, he says, don't do anything, verse 3, from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Of course. First he tells us, have the same love, have the same mind, be in full accord. Then he says the negative, don't do anything out of rivalry. Where do we see rivalry? Sports is one, Right? One team has one interest. In order for rivalry to take place, you got to have teams that are as vested in their own interests and prepared to do whatever they got to do as the next team. Once you got that, you got competition. You don't have that, you don't have anybody who wants to play. And Paul is saying here, that works in sports. I get that there, not in the church. Don't bring that in the church. There shouldn't be rivalry in the church. If you see it in sports, you got a yellow jersey, you're Michigan. I got a blue one, I'm Duke. We're rivals. We're rivals. I'm sorry. But in the church, we should all have the same jersey. We should all be on the same team. You see, when rivalry exists in the church, what we're saying is, yes, we profess faith in Jesus, but we're on different teams. See? I know you're going to heaven. I'll probably see you there. I'm going there too, but we're on different teams. So on one thin level, we got some commonality, but on all every other level and in every other respect, we got our own interests. All sorts of churches have them. It could be ethnic interests. It could be nationalistic interests. It could be political interests. It could be value interests. It could be all sorts of interests, and it's amazing how they bring all of that into the church and try to give the gospel some place. And what Paul is saying is the gospel should inform every area of your life. That nothing trumps the gospel. You see, when this doesn't happen, we could never be around people who are different from us. See, the world should be able to look upon the church and say, wait a second, how are they together? I don't get it. How are they into each other? Like, what do they have in common? Jesus? 
the gospel, a kingdom, a mission here on this earth until he returns, his bride, what he's up to, his agenda, his purposes. You see, everything else takes a backseat. I remember the day I started befriending people that before I was a Christian, I was thinking, I would have never been around people like this, whether it was because of their skin color or it was their age or just their interests. And I was like, this is crazy. I almost had like this out-of-body experience in the moment while I'm around them. I'm thinking like, what am I, if anybody from my previous like guy caught me and saw me in this situation, they'd be like, nap. And I'm like, what, it's Jesus. It's because somehow God brought me to this place where I was prepared to cross all sorts of lines and be around people and be in fellowship and in company with people that I would have never been caught dead with. Why? What, what accomplished that? Not me. It was the gospel. I stopped basing my ties and my connections and my affiliations with people on all this other stuff. And I started basing it upon Jesus. But do they love Jesus? Do they know Jesus? Do they worship Jesus? Do they follow Jesus? Do they serve Jesus? That's all that matters. I could care less about their, they could be 55, I'll still be around them. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. You see, we've got to do away with these rivalries. But how do you do, do away with it? Humility. Humility is a virtue. Humility is, is not beating myself up saying, I'm nobody, I'm nothing. That's, that's, that's religion. That's, that's a, a, a false facade of humility. That's pretense. Biblical humility says, I know I could focus on myself, but I'm going to take my eyes off of myself and give attention to you. You see, biblical humility forgets itself and gives an interest and value to another person. Christian humility sees that I have every opportunity to spend all of this time and energy and thought on myself, but I'm not. I'm going to give that to another person. That's true humility. You see, when you're a humble person, you can't be a rival to another person. Why? Because you are as vested in their interest as they are in their own. You want to see them succeed as much as they want to see them succeed. A W for them is not an L for you. You don't see the world and life like this pie where... For every person who takes a slice, that's one slice you miss out on. You don't see life that way anymore. And so when somebody is moving forward in any sort of way with their life, you can celebrate it and you can praise God for that person. You're someone who now rejoices with those who rejoices. That's what humility affords you. It's something that's lacking in our world. And, and people are just living with all sorts of just envy and just pain and just, how could that happen? How come not me? It's like, what's going on? Where's God at? And, and Paul says, look, do nothing out of rivalry. But in humility, consider others more significant than yourself. The Bible tells us in Mark that Jesus, the Bible says that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give himself as a ransom for many. You see, what enabled Jesus to enter into human history and to live the life that he did and suffer on my behalf and on your behalf and to go through everything that he went through was your interest. 
Hebrews tells us that it was the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. What was that joy? You. And what interest you have in him dying for you. What benefit comes to you? It was for the joy that was set before him. You see, everything that Paul is telling us here in this passage, Paul first found in Jesus. And what he's saying is, what ought to be true about your Lord should be true about his people. You see, when we were first created, we were created in the image of God. Image is mirror, which means we're supposed to reflect. When we were first created, we were created to reflect God's character, God's nature, and God's ways. But because of sin, all of that fell away. We didn't cease being made in the image of God, but that image now is marred. And as a result of that, when we see each other, we don't quite see what God is like the way we would have. You see, when God created us, he wanted to make sure that when we look at each other, we can have a pretty good idea. So that's what God's like. Okay. But because of sin, that was ruined. We lost that. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came, the Bible tells us, as the true image of God. Colossians calls him the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1 and 3 calls him the, he's the exact express imprint of God. Jesus tells Philip in John 14, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus came as that true image so that anyone who sees Jesus has every good idea of what God is like. Jesus came not only to be that true image, but to save us. So that now that we're saved, guess what God is up to? He's recreating us back into that image. And as he recreates us back into that image, guess what? More and more of humility should become part of our life and less and less rivalry. Jesus wasn't jockeying for position. Jesus wasn't rivaling with people. Jesus was a man who was, they, they saw it as though he was weak. Meekness may look like weakness, but it's not weakness. Meekness is actually powerful. The word meekness is actually, um, in a, it's, 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 it's an amazing word. It comes from military and from the soldiers where you have a sword and you have it in your sheath and your hand is right there, but you don't just pull it out and wave it. It's ready, it's there, and at any point that somebody is perceived to you as a legitimate threat, you're ready to wreak havoc but you won't do it prematurely. That's a meek person. So it, it carried over into regular society, which means you're somebody who's able to live in community with people, and you're not somebody who's just, your lid flies off, and you just, you just blow up easily. You got a short fuse, and you're always railing on people, and you're always just prepared to just fight with anybody, and you're just all over the place. You're not that kind of person. You're meek. It may look like weakness because you're not you're not getting ready for every fight that presents itself to you. You're looking for ways to get out of it. And you only put yourself in a situation where you got to when it's necessary. You're that kind of a person. That was Jesus. No man takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Pilate says, don't you realize I, I got the ability. I could take you out right now or spare you. You don't have that authority. The only authority you have is what was given to you from above. You see, Jesus, what enabled him to be able to have this humility, this ability to be vulnerable and exposed to other people's lives, was the fact that he trusted his father. You see, as Christians, 
pathway. Are you trusting your father in this way? Do you, do you believe that he has your back? That he has your vested interest at heart? That nothing can happen to your life. Nothing can interfere. A lot of people are afraid to enter into relationships. A lot of people are afraid to expose themselves to meaningful connections. And they, they spend all of their days in their life keeping a distance. Keeping a distance. I know so many people who just, they, they have an entire conference-like experience to the church. They just benefit from it from a distance. But they never want to actually be a part of people's lives when that's what church is about. Why? Perhaps they got burned. Perhaps there have been things that have happened in their past. But what does Jesus want to do? He wants to redeem that. And the only way that we can redeem that is through the gospel. That's why the rest of the half of what we read is all about the gospel. What does the Bible tell us? Have this mind in you, pathway, a mind of humility, this mind of considering others more significant than yourself, this mind of not merely looking to my own interests. What do I get out of it? What's in it for me? I don't see how. When's, when's the last time somebody's reached out to me? Rather than looking at the church as existing there for me and for my interests, I need to start looking at the church as how can I serve? How can I be there for this place? What is it that I can do that can bring value or add value? That was Jesus. Remember what Kennedy said, right, years ago? I, you weren't alive, but neither was I. Um, <laughs> ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. Ask not what pathway can do for you, per se, but ask what you can do for the church. See, that was Jesus. Jesus didn't come and say, what is this world going to do for me? I'm here. No. The Bible even says in John chapter 1, he came into the world that he made, and it didn't even recognize him. Next verse, he came even to his own, speaking of the Jews, and, the, and his own received him not. He wasn't looking for it. You see, he got it from his father. And so when he came, he came with a posture to put the interests of the ones that he came for ahead of his own. And so if we have gone so far as to admire that about Jesus, if we're Christian, we did. If you belong to Jesus, you must have admired that about him. Why have we not gone a step further to want to see that a part of our lives? I don't want a Jesus that I just admire. I want a Jesus that I follow after. I want my life to resemble his life. Yes, I adore his life. Yes, I worship his life. Yes, I honor his life. Yes, I praise his life. But I want my life to look like his life. And Paul says here, then have this mind among yourselves, which was already in Christ Jesus, if you want to. What mind? The mind that got him from there to here. That mind. It takes a certain mind, attitude, mentality, to get from where Jesus was as God to where he eventually became. as Not just a man, but as a servant who eventually ended up on a cross. That mind is a mind that needs to be in this entire community. Even if you may not have a cross like him at the end of the day, we still need that in our church community. That's what Paul is saying. Philippi, y'all get that? You're going to be good. The Bible tells us that he who was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So what do we see here? A couple of things. 
Jesus is God. Number one. Jesus is God. It's not enough for you. Maybe if, you're, if you just see him as a teacher, that's wonderful, but you haven't gone far enough. Maybe you see him as a prophet, you haven't gone far enough. Maybe you see him as a great rabbi, you haven't gone far enough. Jesus is God. Everything that it means for God to be God, Jesus has. He's God. And the Bible tells us that because he's God, he shares in all of the qualities and the attributes and the characteristics that belonged to the Father, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Why? Because he had it. Right? I don't have to hold on to something that already belongs to me. There's no insecurity. It's already in my possession. Insecurity exists, like in Satan, Lucifer's case, trying to get something that didn't belong to you. That's what kicked him out in the first place. He was reaching for something that was above his pay grade. But in Jesus' case, he's not reaching. He's got it. He is it. He's God. But even though he was God, what did he do? The Bible tells us he humbled himself by becoming a man. He humbled himself. Some translation will say emptied himself or became nothing, some of your versions will say. Some people teach, unfortunately, and I hope that will change. Some people, and you may have heard this, that Jesus emptied himself in the sense that he is no longer God. So while Jesus was on earth here, he was only a human being. He was not God. And there are certain motivations for why certain people teach that. But I want to point something out to you. When Jesus emptied himself, what he emptied was his glory. He didn't empty his divinity. God can never cease to be God. Right? If you're God, you're God. He emptied himself of his he emptied himself of his glory. He emptied himself of the prerogative to availing himself to his divinity. The next way in which he emptied himself was by taking on the form of a servant. So this subtraction, if you will, on Jesus' part is actually an addition. So the way that Jesus became nothing was by adding a nature that he had not had up till then. So up till now, Jesus is fully God. Now that he's become a man, he's fully man. So he's not 50-50. He's fully God and he's fully man. With me? He's fully God and he's fully man. And it's out of that fullness that he's living his life. This is what we worship. This is, what, this is what we lift up. This is who we follow. This is what it means to know him, is, is to realize that this Jesus of ours in this one person had two natures that he was living out of. And while he was here on this earth, he submitted himself to his father's will. So much so that guess what? It resulted in his death on a cross. Jesus' obedience was prepared to go as far as he needed to go in order to please the Father. The point is what? You and I need to have that same kind of, ob of obedience that's prepared to go as far as God wishes to go, even if it comes at a cost to ourselves. You see, a lot of fear on a lot of people's part is, I've been duped before. I've had the short end of the stick before. I've been through this before. I've seen this before, and I'm afraid. That's fear. That's fear. Jesus had a, didn't have fear, but he had a relation with what you and I experienced. Remember when he was in the garden and he said, Father, 
if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, that's his humanity speaking, not his deity. If there's any way for this cup to pass from me, please, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Yours be done. So what is Jesus modeling for us? Be honest. Be real. Be genuine. Don't hide how you're feeling about being open and vulnerable in humility and in serving others and putting other people's interests ahead of your own. But at the end of the day, believe that God is with you like he was with Jesus. God says here in this text, Paul says of God, God exalted him and gave him a name which is above every name. In other words, Jesus may have gone through what he went through, but God didn't leave him there. Acts tells us he wouldn't allow himself to see his his body, see corruption. Jesus rose again three days later, and here he is vindicated for what he went through. All for God to show you, look, you see what I did with my son? Yes, he went through what he went through, but look where I was. I was always there. And look what I did as a result of what he did. That obedience was honored by God exalting him and giving him a name which is above every name. I want you to know something. Maybe you've been quietly serving. Perhaps you, you've been just giving people one more chance, one more opportunity. And that feeling was there where it's like, is there even any use? Should I even bother? Why? Jesus, I'm sure experienced and encountered those same feelings toward people that he had to put ahead of himself. But guess what? Every bit of it was worth it. Whatever it is that you're going through, whatever it is that you have been or have done toward putting other people's interests ahead of your own, God sees you. God sees you. And there's not a service, there's not an act of obedience, there's not a step of faith that is taken on your part that God not only doesn't see, He's prepared to honor like he honored his son. If you belong to Jesus, every way that God was prepared to be, and he was, toward Jesus, he's prepared to be toward you. That's that's the comforting thing of knowing that people or things may mean evil for me, but God always intends it for good. God always intends it for my good. It may look like one thing today, but it's going to be a whole nother thing tomorrow. And God promises me that through just what he did through Jesus' life. You see, this is what helps you to enter into spaces and relationships that may feel uncomfortable and may feel difficult, but you're not there in the first place to get, per se. You're there to give. And what enables you is the fact that your father has already completed you. God has already been everything you need in Jesus and in the gospel. You have what you need. What God wants you to do is take a step of faith and begin to be what Jesus has been toward the people in your lives. Pathway. I really am praying that this this mark our lives, that this mark our community, that a, a spirit of humility just take over this church, that a posture of it's not about rivalry, it's about serving other people. That your greatest joy, this epistle is all about joy, your greatest joy is found not so much in pursuing your own thing as it is pursuing, seeing people go further and grow further in their relationship with Jesus. There's no joy like that. There's no satisfaction like being involved in somebody else's life and seeing them grow and flourish 
in their relationship with Christ and seeing God do that over and over and over again. That's what we're here for, to know this Jesus and to make him known again and again to one life after another. Amen? I want to pray together with you if we can. If we could stand. I know we got people who come from different backgrounds, and we all got different experiences. But I still believe God is faithful. I'm confident that he is for this church, and he is with each and every person. Hagar, somebody in the Bible who looked at herself and her situation and thought nobody, nobody could know. I mean, me, I'm a lost case. You know what she discovered? God met her right where she was. And God reassured her heart and strengthened her when she thought everything was coming to an end. And there's a whole word for God named right there out of that event and that encounter. He's the God who sees. Maybe you know that. She says, my God sees me. Maybe you're someone here today and and you've been living your Christian life and you've been going from week to week. But if the truth be told, you almost feel like God doesn't see you. I want you to know God's eyes are on you, that he's present, he's here, he knows, he's with you. And I want you to experience that presence. I want you to witness his hand in your life. I want you to be comforted in the knowledge of knowing that there's a God who's ever-present. He's never left you, nor will he ever. He's here with you, church. He's here with you, friend. And he wants to walk with you through this life. Jesus saw the faithfulness of his father in his day. He wants you to see the faithfulness of your father in your day. But you've got to believe that God is here, that God wants to work in your life and especially through your life, through your life. He's going to show up. God's going to show out through this church, and he's going to see. All it takes is eyes set on him with a heart that's prepared to believe that with God, anything is possible. If you were with your son in this way, then and there, how could you not be with me here and now with my life? You belong to him? Let's pray. Father, we come before you as your children. We come to you in and through Jesus' name. Father, I pray right now, we already sang, yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory forever and ever. God, we want to see that kingdom. We want to see that power and that glory on display through the lives of each and every dear soul in this church. Lord, I pray. God, I repent if there's any rivalry in my heart. God, I repent if there's any conceit that's been harbored in my heart. God, I ask for your humility to begin to characterize and mark my life. I pray for my brothers and my sisters as well. God, I ask that I be less and less a person that's into my own interests and more and more of a person that is putting the interests of other people ahead of my own. God, I want to start seeing people more significant in my eyes than just myself. Lord, I want to, I want to take more of an interest in a heart as to what's going on in the lives of other people. I want to see how, what you're prepared to do through my life and how you're prepared to use us as we begin to minister to other people. God, this wasn't just true about Jesus. This is also true about each and every one of us if we belong to Jesus.
may we be a gospel-centered church. May we be a gospel-driven church. May Jesus be alive and well through this community. May your spirit be free to do as he pleases. God, I pray that we not be just a bunch of religious people in a, as a religious group that people say, oh, there's a church there. I want to be a group of people who are alive to God, who are alive to Jesus, who are alive to the gospel and your mission here in this world. Open our eyes, God. God, help us see what's going on and what you're up to. And may we be aligned with you and with your purposes. May your agenda be our agenda. May your ways be our ways. May your plans be our plans. May your purpose be our purpose. God, bring us behind you and lead the way so that we might see what you do with the life that's in service to you. We trust that you'll do this. We trust that you are. We give you all the glory. and We praise you above everything else. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.